Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. I love seeing your names on the Zoom attendees and on Facebook Live, showing who's watching and who's with us. I love being with you, even when we're scattered. Now, some of us might be thinking, why is Bruce City Church doing this? Why have they just kind of made the service all about what's going on in our nation? Why not preach the gospel? Friends, this is the gospel. Racial reconciliation is the gospel. See, the gospel isn't some tiny, small, compartmentalized little little bit of fire insurance saving our souls, and that's it. That's all God's interested in. That's not just the gospel. That's a part of it, but that's not just the gospel. See, the beauty of the gospel is that God's not interested in just saving some of us. God is interested in redeeming and reconciling the whole of creation. And that means injustice. That means oppression. That means that new creation is breaking forth and God is interested in redeeming all of it. See, when Jesus, when God himself came to earth, he didn't didn't begin his ministry by having an altar call. Look it up. Jesus didn't begin his ministry by having an altar call. Jesus began his ministry by saying this in Luke 4. These are the first words of Jesus that we get in the gospel. These are the first words of Jesus in ministry that we get in the gospel of Luke. And Jesus said this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the gospel. We're not going to pretend. We're not going to have heavy hearts six days a week and then try to drum up, drum up some fake inspiration on Sunday morning and pretend that our world isn't burning around us. We're not going to pretend that everything's okay. We're going to feel this weight. And I want to tell you what God has told me this week over and over again. This is not just a weight. This is a prophetic weight that you feel, that I feel. This is a weight that we need to feel, that we cannot shrug off that we cannot move on from and try to ignore, try to pretend, try to insulate ourselves. This is a moment for people of the gospel to show what the gospel really is. The reason we're doing this is because of the heart of the prophets in Christ himself. Probably about a decade ago, I was introduced to Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And that also is part of why we're doing this, because that letter shook me to my core. One of the beautiful things today is that Martin Luther King has become a person that we, can, we, we unify around. Conservatives and liberals alike 
honor and, and give Martin Luther King's voice weight. And, and we, we see that as, as a, him as a needed voice, as a modern day prophet. What's easy to forget is that in 1968, the year that he, Martin Luther King was assassinated, he had a 75% disapproval rating. He was not beloved in his time by most people. He was hated by most white people. And he was assassinated for being a prophetic voice at a time when the world needed it desperately, when this nation needed it desperately. In the spring of 1963, Alabama kind of was was in the throes of segregation. And Martin Luther King and his, and his comrades decided to march into Birmingham, Alabama and stage peaceful protests, sit-ins. Just peaceful protests, just sitting and making a statement by having a peaceful presence that wouldn't go away. He invited the church into it, the black and the white church into it. And you know how the white church responded? They got together and they made a statement saying that what Martin Luther King was doing was dangerous, that he should be quiet, that this is not the way to do this, that, that the, he needed patience, abide by the laws, the unjust laws. And this was not just any run-of-the-mill pastors. This was Episcopalian bishops. This was Catholic, Roman Catholic bishops. This was Methodist bishops. This was Southern Baptist ministers. This is Presbyterian ministers. This is a rap, Jewish rabbi speaking out against a modern-day prophet. And after he was arrested, Martin Luther King wrote a letter to those church leaders begging them to see why he was doing this for the sake of the gospel and, and to join with them. And I want to read you some of this. It's a long, long letter. It's beautiful. It's prophetic. It's earth shaking and haunting. I recommend that you read it. We, from this letter, this, this prophetic proclamation and cry for help and justice, we get these famous lines from Martin Luther King, like injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's why you see marching in peaceful protests in the city of Milwaukee once for something that happened in Minneapolis, because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I wanna read an excerpt where Martin Luther King is appealing to the church, particularly the white church. This is in 1963, but he could say it today. Follow with me and take this in if you can. I must say, Dr. King said, that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would, we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our greatest and strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders 
All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent be behind the anesthetized, anesth anesth <laughs> I can't say that word, shoot, behind the security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. He's talking to the church. I had hoped that each of you church leaders would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their, worship, their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say these are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I've watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. Are you listening? I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings. I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her mass massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Barnett dripped with the words of interposition and nullification? Where were th was the church when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was rather a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered, the entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils of infanticide and gladiatorial contests. 
Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet with young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps once, I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. That word from a Birmingham jail in the spring of 1963 is a word that the church needs to hear today. So often in the church, I know there's good intentions, but maybe we don't speak up because we think we'll get hated for it. We'll get rejected because of it. Friends, I don't care if we lose people because we're speaking up about the fullness of the gospel, about injustice and oppression, I don't care. Sometimes we don't speak up because we're, we're afraid we might say it wrong. We might not say it right. Some people on the, the far left might say you said it wrong, or the people on the far right might say you shouldn't have said anything. I don't care. We're not going to get it perfect. We're not going to say it exactly right for everyone. But we're going to say something. And we're not going to stop saying something. We're going to stand and speak and act prophetically in this world. What we're finding in our world right now, these cries and these, these, these screams, these, these breaths for air, protests, fires burning. I felt like as Shelley was speaking this morning, the spirit said to me, new creation will not be stopped. No thing, no force like racism, like hatred, like violence will ever overcome new creation. See, what's happening right now is we are in the birth pains of new creation. Spirit was laying on my heart what you're feeling, this pain that you're feeling are birth pains. Something's being born out of the cries of injustice. Something's being born out of the fire. Something's taking root and being born and giving birth to, and it's called new creation. And, and I haven't, I'm not a woman, I haven't given birth to a child, but I've been around four labors and, labor and deliveries. And I've seen the pain. My wife's gums were bleeding when she was pushing out our first baby. She, her blood vessels on her face broke as she was pushing and crying and everything in her was full of pain and misery and she just wanted to get through it. And she pushed, and she pushed. 
And this beautiful new creation was born out of that pain. And friends, I think our world is in that place right now. See, Jesus is kind of a midwife saying, keep pushing. Keep pushing. You're almost there. You've got it. You can do this. I know it's painful. I know, you, I know you're screaming. I hear you. New creation is coming. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time. We're going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes just in, in harp and bull worship as much as we can online. Crying out to God for new creation. Crying out to God to break the chains of injustice and to break the yoke of oppression. We're going to spend the rest of our time praying and worshiping because this is what the church does. We pray, we stand, and we act, and we speak. This is what we do. So, Spirit of God, We welcome your prophetic weight, that burden. We say, come Lord Jesus. Would you forgive us and cleanse us in Jesus' name? Would you forgive our systems of injustice and tear them down? Would you forgive our silence? Would you forgive our complicity? Would you forgive our ignorance? Would you forgive our ignoring hatred and violence and racism and injustice and oppression. Would you forgive us, Jesus? Would you come and bring new creation? Amen.